If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 16. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. One of the truest things that we can see in our lives is the effect of God's love. One of the truest things that we as believers experience is the overwhelming sense that God has done something for us that he has not done for everybody. And one of the saddest realities is that so many of us know this truth, have experienced this truth, and yet we don't know how to communicate that to anyone else. We don't know how to present it to a brother or sister the way God would want us to. We don't know how to present that to an unbeliever, someone that doesn't know Jesus. Because what happens to us many times as we walk with God the very things that we experienced in the beginning, the very things that we knew in the beginning that truly stirred our hearts no longer stir our hearts anymore. This morning we're going to be looking at motivations for love. Number one, the source, verses 7 through 8. Number two, the gift, verses 9 through 11. And number three, the connection, verses 12 through 16. Let's start with number one, the source, verses 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There's a lot packed into those verses. We should love one another because the source of love is God himself. God is the source for love. It is so important that if we don't love as God would want us to, we can't completely give somebody the truth when it comes to love. We're going to have our own definition. We will not line up with what God himself has stated. You see, many claim to know God. They claim to know his love, but when it comes to expressing that love to others, we're very inconsistent, or our definitions are misaligned. The big question in all of this is, what definition of love are we going to go by when we think of that word? 
Because the word today is used easily throughout all generations, even today's cultures, in different ways. Love means different things to different people. If you were to ask most people today what they think love is, you would get as many varying answers as you have people. In fact, if I were to hand you a survey privately, what do you think love is, your definition would probably be different than the person sitting next to you. The word has been used in different ways, and that ultimately alters its meaning, meaning from what this text is saying. We say we love a certain food like steak. Do we mean the same thing when we say we love our children? Of course not. It's a different love, right? We use that word love, and it doesn't mean the same thing there. I mean, it's truly sad if you do love steak as much as other people. That's a really messed up view of love. The word has been used in many different ways, and sadly it's been cheapened to a mere feeling one feels at the moment. How many of us have felt this warm affection for somebody one day, and we assume, well, I love them. See, I, leave, I feel something to them, towards them today. That's a good feeling. And then the next day, that feeling is just not there. Did the love for them change, or did our definition change from what God actually expects? God meant for us to understand what love is because he is love. That's what scripture tells us throughout. The problem for most of mankind lies in the fact that we all have our preconceived notion of what a God of love looks like. Which is one of the reasons why we see our culture redefine it all the time. We know that all of us will have preconceived notions regarding what love is based on what we've read, listened to, or even experienced ourselves. Nevertheless, our views regarding love outside of God's word will be at times incomplete and flawed, believer. There will be things we get right from time to time regarding love, but our perception will only be as accurate as our attention to the details found in God's word. Here's how difficult it is to get a working definition of love according to statements that you will find out online. Here's what it says online. Love is difficult to define. How do you avoid confusing it with infatuation or lust? Philosophers and psychologists both have attempted to define love, per least its difference from infatuation and lust. If you are looking to find love, the following observations may be helpful. This is how they try to help us to figure out what love is. Love is much more than a risk, but is a risk that one can take and grasp and fall into a dark abyss or dig oneself a hole and only crawl back when you overcome your emotions. How can one truly define what love is? Not even an experienced person can truly grasp or explain love to its truest and deepest meaning. Its concepts are just a never-ending story of an open book of experiences. But love does lie in one's heart where memories are but shadows lingering in your soul. What in the world does that all mean? I'm reading this, I'm going, how did you help me? It's because we don't define love the way God does. That's why we're so confused. We assume that love is what everyone defines it to be, which is one of the real traps that Christians have fallen into. 
Christians are like, we believe in moral absolutes. Do you believe in the absolute definition of love or not? Or does love mean something to you that it doesn't mean to me? Because that's where moral relativism creeps into the church. When we start defining things by our own definition. There are many words for love that you will find throughout Scripture. But the one we're going to be looking at is agape love, which is mentioned here. This originates from God's own nature. God is the source. Which is what makes this text even more incredible. When he says, beloved, you know what the Apostle John is trying to communicate? Divinely loved ones. Think about it for a moment. Divinely loved. Truly a love outside this world. Truly a love that you and I cannot fathom because it is beyond our ability to grasp sometimes. You have been divinely loved, believer. This goes beyond mere human experience. God is the one that gives this word meaning because as this text says is, he is love. God himself is love. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that love is God. You don't get to import your definition and then reapply it to God. God gets to apply the definition because he is the standard. He gets to define the word for us. God is love. He determines what it means, which is why phrases like love is love are anathema to God. Blasphemy. And any church that proclaims that is going against the God of the Bible. Any church that celebrates what man wants to redefine that God has clearly set is, is blaspheming God. The God who is love and what he says matters more than what you and I feel. You see, agape love finds virtue and praise for the other and giving of oneself for the other. God is the greatest being that has ever existed. He's had no beginning and no end. He gets to define this love outside of time and space. And his love for us essentially is giving of himself for us. God gave you the greatest gift he could when he gave himself. This love is unconditional in that even if the object of this love does not respond, is angered, spiteful, or wishes ill, it continually pursues. You know that's God's relationship with you and me if we're his children? He continually pursues. Knowing we despise him, knowing we hate him, knowing we don't care what, what we do in front of him. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Agape love is a sacrificial love that God shows because he is this love. God already knew we would fail. He planned to save us before we ever existed. That's the kind of love he has. 
By the way, believer, you need to realize this. Not everyone possesses this love. It's not a love that some are even aware of or familiar with. As Jesus speaks to Jewish leaders that denied his deity, he says the following statement in John 5, 39-43. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. What Jesus is essentially telling these Pharisees is that you do not possess this divine love. Not everyone has this divine love. This word is hard for the world, this, this love is hard for the world to grasp. Because it seems impossible to truly understand unless one has been changed by the gospel. Until the gospel changes us from the inside out, we do not understand what this love really is. John MacArthur points out, agape love is the greatest virtue of the Christian life. Yet that type of love was rare in pagan Greek literature. That's because the traits agape portrays, unselfishness, self-giving, willful devotion, concern for the welfare of others, was mostly disdained in ancient Greek culture as signs of weakness. However, the New Testament declares agape to be the character trait around which all others revolve. The Apostle John writes, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Believer, this is a love that the world does not understand. This is a love that we ought to understand, but many times are confused. The reason this love even makes sense to us is because of not only the source, but also the gift, which was God giving us his own son. Number two, the gift, verses 9 through 11. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, apart from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, man has failed and will keep failing to reach perfection. And if it were not for God the Father loving us by sending us Jesus Christ, the most precious thing to him, we would be doomed for all of eternity. We are hopeless and destined for damnation apart from that. Believer, if this doesn't stir your heart again when you hear this, then check your spiritual pulse. 
Because the truth is, we as believers walk away from the shepherd of our souls. We walk away from Jesus. We walk away from fellowship with the Father. And we wonder why nothing is stirred in our hearts. We wonder why words on a page that should be giving us life seems to fall on deaf ears with us. Believer, if leaders in the Old Testament and leaders even in the New Testament could walk away from the things of God and God can say something to them and they don't listen, so can you and I. You see, we believe that God offers us the free gift of salvation. But it cannot be earned by any means, but rather through faith and repentance. Believing God is who he says he is, and Christ has done all that is necessary for our eternal salvation. We turn from trusting in ourselves as our own God, and we surrender to him because he is, God is love. You know the truest thing? is that you and I all, we all want love. We want to be loved. And when God demonstrates that he loves us by giving us Jesus, we still don't take it for what it is. God gave the most precious thing for us. And yet so many things we find more precious than that. We like the other gifts God gives, not the son that he gave for us. It's like, Jesus should be important, but all this other stuff is more important. All to Jesus I surrender, right? That's what we sing. All to him I freely give. What happens down the road? What happened to continually surrendering to Jesus? I like how 10th Avenue North made a statement in one of their songs. All the pretty things that steal my heart away. They take our heart away from God and away from the gift that he gave us in his son, Jesus Christ. John MacArthur points out, biblical agape love is not an emotion but a disposition of the heart to seek the welfare and meet the needs of others. Greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends, Jesus said. And that is exactly what Jesus himself did on behalf of those God has chosen to be saved. In the ultimate divine act of love, God determined before the foundation of the earth that he would give his only son to save us. Believer, pause for a moment and take it in. Before you were ever in existence, God determined to love you. Before anyone knew your name on this earth, before your parents gave, me, gave you your name, he already knew you. Agape love, as we mentioned, finds virtue and praise for the other and giving of oneself for the other. God could not give anything greater than giving his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Anything that we appreciate and enjoy in this life, no matter how wonderful it is, pales in comparison to what we have in Christ. Believer, as this text says, we didn't love God. He loved us. And can I encourage you with something, believer? Right now, as we speak, God still loves you. Even when you don't really love him. He loves his own. He loves his children. Jesus loves his sheep. He gave his life for his sheep. We didn't love God. He loved us. We sinned against him. And he still gave us a gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. What love does that? What love is wronged and says, instead of just fixing the wrong, I'm going to go ahead and replace that and make sure that you get the gift still. This love not only fixes what was broken, it gives it back by paying the price of what was broken. Here's a motivator for love. You've been loved in a way that should blow you away. And we're so excited about the little pathetic things that we bought that's brand new that'll be at a garage sale 10 years from now that we're going to sell for 25 cents. We're so excited about the things that are passing. Believers, we've been loved by Christ who gave himself for us. He paid a price that we could never pay. That's why he makes the statement in this text, if God so loved us, if this is the way that he has loved us, he's demonstrating it this way. That's why we should love one another. That's the way we should love others. A motivator for you and me should be, hey, I've been loved. I need to love. And not in a, I got to do it. Thanks, God. You gave me something to do. More like, I can't believe you've done this for me, God. I want to love people like you've loved me. I want to be patient how you've been patient with me. I want to make sure that I encourage a brother or sister who's fallen and needs to get back up like you've done for me. Agape love is a love of the will. Believer, you and I cannot love another brother or sister happenstance, accidentally, hopefully. It's intentional. It's volitional. It's decisive. You need to make a choice that you are going to love others this way. Apart from your feelings. Imagine if God had a relationship with us based on feelings. Man, am I glad that's not the case. God loves us in spite of what we've done against him. God's gracious in spite of the wrath that we deserve. 
God cares even when we are faithless. So when we, when we read verses like John 13, 35, realize, believer, that this is something that you are to be intentional about. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, that's the agape love here, for one another. You want to love people the way God would want you to love people? Make sure that you understand how God's loved you first. And I promise you it'll change the way you love other people. Realize one thing, God didn't by chance save you. He intentionally made sure that happened. And he expects you to do the same for others. To be intentional in how you love other brothers and sisters. This is to be an intentional love, not happenstance. Hopefully I can get to it sometime. Hopefully I can be what I should be to others. And let's, let's, be, let's be frank for a moment. There are days we wake up, we have more of a sense of, I'm going to do something for others because I just feel like it today, right? Like, you kind of feel motivated to do it. It's not always spiritual. It's not really a motivation by God. It is just like, I feel like I need to do something because I blew it the other day. You ever done that? You ever been motivated by, like, I screwed up so bad the other day, I need to do something good today? We all have. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Great words of wisdom. Has anybody offended you? Seek reconciliation. Oh, but I am the offended party. So was God. And he went straight away and sought reconciliation. Brother, do the same. Oh, but I have been insulted. Just so. So was God. All the wrong was towards him, yet he sent. Oh, but the party is so unworthy. So are you. But God loved you and sent his son. Go right according to that copy. Believer, what right do we have to make a statement that others owe us something for the wrong they've done against us when we've infinitely offended God? And he's graciously still loved us. You see, if we understood this on a practical level, it would transform the way our marriages are. The way we love our spouse, it would transform that. It would transform the way that we love each other in this church. We would go, you know what, brother, sister, you really hurt me, you offended me. Here, I really want to work this out. We got to reconcile here. Let's work this out. For the sake of Christ. Not because my feelings were hurt at that day. Believer, you have to understand that God is not wanting you to seek reconciliation for the sake of reconciliation so you feel better about yourself. He's asking you to seek reconciliation because it's a mark of what he's done for you. He loved you in that way. Even though you had nothing to offer on the other side of that bargain. You only had sin to offer. All perfection, all glory, sin, hatred, vile, despising God. And he seeks to reconcile us. See, a person committed to live out agape love may experience a variety of emotions. Believer, you're not always going to feel like loving people. Some warnings to consider in how we love one another. I want you to really practically think about this, believer. 
Agape love lived out may mean the other person never changes or ever responds in the way that we like. I need you to understand that. And I need you to pause for a moment when you kind of take that in and go, how many areas of my life have I refused to change that God's called me out for years on? Like, I know better on this, and yet I've still done the same thing. God's told me, you need to change this in your life, and I'm going, you know what? Tomorrow. I'll do it another day. And it's been 20 years. Time's passed. In pursuit of loving others unconditionally, one may lose oneself in their own identity. You need to be careful, believer, that in trying to love others as Christ would want to love us to love others, we need to be careful that we don't lose ourselves in thinking of ourselves. Can I, can I pause for and make a statement that might seem controversial, but it's the truth. You can't change people, so don't attempt to be God. You can love in the same manner that he does, but you can't change anybody else. I can't change anybody else. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life as it is in mine. Believer, to love unconditionally is not necessarily to feel warm feelings. You are not going to feel warm feelings all the time when you're loving people that way. If you're looking for sentimental feeling every time that you want to exemplify this love of God, it is not going to happen. Remember, this love is a volitional love. This is an act of the will. Emotions may be involved, but they are not the priority. In fact, we can even love our enemies. Because remember, God loved us before we were his. But that doesn't mean that we have great feelings because someone did us wrong. God is not calling us to a twisted love that enjoys pain. Don't believe that. Oh, I love them, even though they've hurt me so much. I love all the things they've done to me. That is not what God is saying to do. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Because he loved us. All of this is made possible by doing what we know to do, which is abiding. All of these things that are mentioned about loving others as Christ has loved us, it's possible by abiding. Number three, the connection, verses 12 through 16. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. When John is making the statement that no one has seen God, the Father, without some kind of cloak or filter, Moses only got to see the back. Even manifestations of God in human or angelic form in Scripture were not the full manifestation. 
In fact, 1 Timothy 1.17 says this, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus himself, who is God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, has declared him to us. And he gave us a glimpse into this immaterial connection that we have with God as a spirit. In John 4, 23 through 24, Jesus is answering the important question of what is worship to look like. He says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and that means that there is an immaterial connection that we are to have with him. Though not fully seeing him in all his splendor, but veiled. If we love one another, as this text says, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Believer, your love for other brothers and sisters is a declaration of your spiritual connection to the vine. And you need to ask yourself the question even now. How am I doing in loving my brothers and sisters? And we're talking about brothers and sisters in the church, in the faith. I love the way the New Living Translation words this. His love is brought to full expression in us. You know you're walking with Christ when you are experiencing his love for his own. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. Did you know that other believers are children of God too? And God wants you to love them as he has loved you, believer? Why do we forget that Jesus also paid for our brothers and sisters? Sometimes we so personalize our walk with God that we think God only cares about us. Believer, he wants you to care for others. God has enough time for all of us. God is unlimited in his resources. He is able to meet a person's need over here and another's over there at the same time. So when you're thinking God's too busy, he's not. You and I are. We're the ones that are too busy to do what he's called us to. Or some of us are too bored. Our boredom turns into patterns that really pull us away from him. Your love has matured, believer, when you've grown to love other brothers and sisters as you've been loved. When you can see a brother or sister that's struggling with sin, and you can step back and go, you know what, I remember when I fell into that. I want to help them. Not condemn them, I want to help them. I want to make sure that they understand that I know what they've gone through, and I've been able to be rescued from that myself. Not in a prideful, look at me, I've arrived. But in a humble, you know what, God's done this in my life. He's restored my marriage. He's fixed the things that were going on in my home. He's worked on those things with my children. And I want to encourage you on this. Not in, I'm I'm doing better than you. I'm here. I've arrived. We haven't arrived. None of us have. 
there are areas of weakness that are strengths in other people's lives. Do you know that? And the unfortunate thing is, those of us that are weak, we look at the person that's strong in that area, and we look at them as if, how dare you tell me? You don't know what it's like. Many times they do. Many times they do. We just don't post everything on Facebook in front of everybody. Many of us are going through the same struggles at home. Many of us are going through the same struggles during the week. Many of us question things in our own lives. Wondering whether or not we can attain what God's called us to. When a brother or sister is hurting spiritually, physically, emotionally, you pray for them and you try to help support them in any way that you can. And here's a mark of a mature believer. If you can't help a brother or sister that you notice is struggling, you find another brother or sister that can. Like, hey, you should talk to them. They're going to be able to help you here. They helped others in this. You know what's worse is noticing a brother or sister that's struggling, that's fallen into sin, and you just go, you know what, man, I hope they get up. I hope they figure it out. I did eventually. We ought to pay attention and admonish one another. And when you and I can't help, find another brother or sister that can support them. When a brother or sister has fallen into a dark season of sin in their life, you remember what you've been rescued from. You reach out and try to be his hands and feet. What you don't need is to be the Pharisee acting like you've never thought that, said that, or would do something like that. The truth is, all of us have that capacity. Don't ever look at another brother or sister who's struggling with something and you kind of know about it and assume that you would never do something like that. Be careful where pride takes you. It'll destroy you and me. When a brother or sister tries to bring a warning or maybe even an encouragement to you, you receive it graciously, knowing it may be exactly what you need to hear at that time. Not every warning to you is meant to be a judgment, believer. Not every, hey, if you're doing this, watch out, you might fall here. Is not, it does not mean that that person is necessarily out to get you or to condemn you. That's what are we reading the scriptures for when it warns us all the time. The truth is we may not be seen clearly at the moment. All of us have been called out of time in our lives. And we weren't always seeing things clearly at that moment. Mature Christians are those that know how to love the most like Christ. Here's how. Jesus was willing to give of himself to benefit others. Are we willing to give of our time and energy to help someone else in need? Jesus invested in his time with others. Look, you can break away from those Netflix shows. I'm sure they'll be around. I'm sure you can get back to them later and do something for the kingdom that would matter. More than dead space wasted. Jesus obeyed the Father living a sinless life. A mature believer understands the importance of holy living before God and others. It matters that God is exemplified in their life. 
Jesus, when he had the resources to help others, he did. Whether it was food that he fed the multitude with, or whether it was healing the sick because he was able to as God. The mature believer knows where they used to be and pays attention to where others are currently in order to help where they can. They take seriously verses that tell them not to just pray when you can do something about it. Believe I, sometimes praying about something God has called you to do is a sin. You're essentially telling God, no, I don't agree with you, I want you to do this. Jesus, in eating with sinners, did not dismiss or ever celebrate their sin, but rather he called them to repentance. A mature believer knows the lines that, that should not be crossed to approve of what God is clearly against. Jesus cared to tell the truth, even if it offended or hurt people he loved, like the rich young ruler. Read that in Mark 10, 17 through 22. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, this rich young ruler seemed to have good intentions in coming before Jesus, like so many do, trying to please God in what he's doing. But he was not fully committed to Christ, willing to give up what was needed. Jesus, in love, tells him to do the one thing he wouldn't want to do, sell everything he had, give it away, and come follow him. That's a big ask. Put yourself in that man's shoes. That's a big ask. You got a lot of money. Sell everything. Give to the poor. Follow me. The rich young ruler couldn't do it. But I believe later on, he more than likely came to Christ, as it tells us that Jesus loved him. Jesus later tells the disciples that this is impossible with men, but God, all things are possible with God. If we're to be mature believers that have the Spirit working in us, then we ought to be willing to understand the part that God plays, which we can't as mere humans. There are things God can only do, you and I can't, in others' lives. When loving others, we don't change the truth to accommodate their perspective or to make them feel better. We need to call it as it is in the Word of God. So many think loving means not offending. And they've completely twisted the Jesus of the Bible into one in their own image. Look at how he finishes this text in 1 John. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. John declares to the readers that he has seen firsthand Jesus in the flesh as the Savior. 
He got to experience it for himself firsthand. And he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. One must confess Jesus as Savior in order to abide in him. False converts do not confess the exclusivity of Christ as Savior. Voice makes a statement. He says, to believe in Christ and to love the brethren are not conditions by which we dwell in God, but rather are evidences of the fact that God has already taken possession of our lives to make this possible. It starts with faith in Jesus Christ. You want assurance in your abiding in the vine? Believers, see how you're loving the other brothers and sisters around you right now. Take the test for yourself. How are you doing in this? Do you have the right perspective of the love that God has for you? Maybe you're struggling with doubt. Not sure how God could really love you with all that you do. Maybe you respond in pride. Thinking, of course God loves me. Look at what I've done for him. Or maybe you respond with apathy, which I think is the majority of Christians. It doesn't matter what I do. God will love me just the same. The right response, believer, is one of humility and love for him and others, his children. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Believer, when we abide in the love of God, we're essentially abiding in him because he is love. God's love is something you live out because it's affected you from within. Think of it this way. You know how much God cared for you before you ever did for him. And you seek to do so for others that don't care for him either. You are his ambassador. You represent the Lord Jesus Christ. When people see you, they should see Jesus in you. It should not be just a cliche statement. You represent not only Christ, but also his love in the way that you love others. So in conclusion, church... Are you motivated to love? Are you motivated to love? Have you forgotten all that the Father did in showing you that He is love? And all that you could ever find or want is found in Him. Does what Jesus did on your behalf really matter in how you live your life? Or is it just the same old routine every time? Yeah, I know God loves me. I know Jesus did this for me. Or is there a motivator there? Is there something that motivates you now to live? To love that way? Or are you just satisfied to keep doing what you've always done? The same sin, just a different day. Step back and evaluate your love for other brothers and sisters. Especially the ones it's harder to love. How are we doing with this? 
A sign of maturity in a believer's life is when they stop thinking about how the church can serve them, but how they can serve the church, the brothers and sisters God has placed near them. Many in the church are spiritually immature, constantly needing attention, still upset that others aren't noticing them. The mature believer joins in with John the Baptist in declaring, less of me, Lord, and more of you. That's a sign of maturity. Less of me, more of you. Unfortunately, when we're immature believers, it's always me, me, me. Little kids screaming for attention. Whining to everybody. There's more to this life than what many of us have been living. You see, some of this might seem quite foreign to you. You're probably hearing all this and going, how does this apply to me? I don't even understand any of this. Because it starts by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to start there. You have to come and sit in faith to God and say, I believe that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. That he died, that he rose again the third day for my sin. That he's my Lord and Savior. I can't save myself. The prodigal coming home is a moment of great rejoicing in heaven. We make such a small thing out of something so great to God. Whether it's a person acknowledging Christ for the first time, or the saint who's lived like a sinner dishonoring the name of Christ, God is glorified when that sinner repents. Heaven rejoices when we come back in fellowship before the Father. God is not just excited or rejoicing when you first come to him. He's excited when you repent even as his child. You came home. You were away for a while. You come home. I love you, son. I love you, daughter. Let me make a feast. I want you to put it in perspective, believer. That marriage supper of the Lamb is because God loves us so much. We get to rejoice at the table with all the saints in glory. And all of those things are done for prodigals that came home. What greater motivations can be given than what we see here in this text? The source of love, which is God himself. The gift of God, Jesus Christ. And the connection with God found in abiding in him as we love our brothers and sisters. Let's close in prayer. And we won't have a final song this morning. Father, we thank you so much for giving us